All right, so please open your Bibles to the book of Numbers as we move along in our overview study of the Bible, trying to do uh, each book in the, in the span of one lesson. And I will note that for those keeping track, I've so far kept every book to one lesson. Uh, so, some may have thought that I would not, and they, they might be on the front row towards my right. Um, but that's okay. We're making it. Um, we're in the book of Numbers, and uh, the, the book of Numbers begins this way. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, and the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. And so let's take some time here at the beginning to just kind of orient ourselves based on verse 1 with where we are in the overall uh, story of Israel. That's, that's really the, the overall story of the Bible. Uh, what's our setting? Who's speaking? Uh, the Lord is who's speaking, and he's speaking uh, from the tent of meeting, but not just from the tent of meeting. That's how the book of Leviticus begins. The Lord calls to Moses from the tent of meeting, Moses outside of it. Now Moses has been brought into the tent of meeting. He's able to, to be with God, uh, in a sense, face to face. Who is this Lord that we've been looking at over the last several weeks as he's revealed in uh, in the Pentateuch. Well, he's our creator and our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. We've seen that really highlighted in the book of Genesis, but also just throughout. He is our creator and covenant-making and keeping God. He has made promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where he, where he calls Abram to leave his house, leave his father's land, and go to the land that he will show him. He confirms those same promises by the covenant ceremony in Genesis 15, 17 to 20. And then he confirms those same promises again with the sign of the covenant, that being the sign of circumcision, in Genesis 17, 3 to 10. And we've seen God's faithfulness to that covenant promise for the last several books. And now in the book of Numbers, they're finally uh, on the march to the land. Uh, who does the book of Exodus reveal the Lord to be? Does anybody remember from the book of Exodus a couple weeks ago? Yeah. Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. And, and why did he deliver us, Mr. Johnson? Why? Yeah. That's a it is a good question. Mr. Horn. To come uh, to work. Let his people worship him in the wilderness? Yeah, we might might state that a little bit differently, but conceptually that's correct. He he delivered us that we might dwell with him, that we might be with him. And and the book of Exodus is really about that deliverance and for that purpose. And we said last week and two weeks ago in the book of Exodus as well, it ends on the problem of Moses not being able to enter the tabernacle not being able to dwell with God. Even the most holy amongst all the people could not dwell with him. Why is that? Because God's holy. And we're not. What's the solution? The solution is the book of Leviticus. Uh, For those of you that were in the 830 sermon, and those of you that are going to the 11, which should cover the gamut of this room, you either have heard or you will hear Dr. Phillips walk through... uh, Probably the most important chapter in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. And he speaks of uh, the, the two goats, the one 
who is slain to show uh, the, the, the penalty for sin being paid. And the other one, who is the scapegoat, who has the, the sins of the people confessed over him and is led uh, away into the wilderness, showing the sins being put out of the camp, being put outside. So one showing the, the, the debt being paid, and another showing the, the remembrance of that debt being taken away. And, and that's really what Leviticus does, what it shows us. And, and, and so because that system has been instituted now in this verse, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Numbers, we see that Moses is speaking with the Lord in the tent. He is welcome in the presence of God because of the sacrifice and the shed blood of the Lamb. So that's where we're at on the narrative level. Uh, we've also broken down the Pentateuch this way. We've said uh, Genesis reveals God as creator. Exodus reveals him as redeemer. Leviticus as the sanctifier. He is making his people holy. And today, the book of Numbers, for those of you who remember uh, from previous weeks, we've said really reveals God as the protector of his people. So he's created his people, he has redeemed his people, he is sanctifying them, and now in Numbers we will see how he protects them. And so this morning as we focus on that topic, we'll see uh, really three things in the book of Numbers. Uh, and before I get to those three things, just um, I know this is a book that we're probably not as familiar with as Genesis and Exodus, things like that. Um, and, and last week you may recall... Uh, I, I, I posited that a reason we're probably not that familiar with Leviticus is that there's almost no narrative in it. There's almost no story. It's just a list of procedures and rules. Numbers is almost the complete opposite. There are so many episodes, so many tales, so many stories. I, I don't like the word tales because it suggests not true. There are so many records of things that happened in this book that we cannot possibly cover them all, but I've tried to organize them as best I can under these three headings. So by all means, uh, go back and look at the book of Numbers this week, but the three headings will be this. Chapters 1 through 10 show how God protects his people by preparing his people. He protects them by preparing them. Chapters 11 through the first half of 21 will show us how God protects his people by purifying them. God protects his people by purifying them. And then the final section, chapter 21 through 36, will show how God protects his people by preserving them. So, protects them by preparing, purifying, and preserving. Uh, looking back now to chapter 1, uh, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. So this is the in, in a large part, where the book gets its name. It's a, it's a list, it's a numbering of the people. The, the book of Numbers both begins and ends with this process of numbering the people. And specifically, it's the people, it's the, it's the young men that are of age to go to battle. Because in marching through the wilderness, they are going to encounter 
uh, enemy kings, enemy armies, enemy territory, and they need to have their men uh, who are of age to go into battle uh, prepared. And this preparation really continues into chapter 2 where the Lord, he not only counts them, but he organizes them. He organizes them, and we won't read through all the details of that, but I've, I've actually put the, the formulation that, that the book of Numbers gives you in chapter 2 for where he organizes who. And the point is, they're all organized around the tabernacle. And it, it says in Numbers chapter 2 that uh, when they're camped, Numbers 2 verse 2, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses, and they shall camp facing the tabernacle. Uh, on every side, facing the tent of meeting on every side. So he's organizing the 12 tribes around the tabernacle. And what do you suppose that is intended to communicate? What's he trying to tell us by that? Yeah. Israel centered around God. Everything they do is to be centered around and focused on the Lord. Spot on. Uh, the Lord who, who dwells in their midst. He is the one that is guiding them and leading them into this land that he promised their fathers. Uh, and this centrality of being organized around God is really hammered home in the next couple chapters of this section what, where the focus is, is heavily on the Levites. You'll notice that if you took the time to count these, there's 11 on the outside and the tribe of Levi is actually an exception and they are to serve directly in the tabernacle, the needs of the tabernacle. And they're also dispersed throughout to minister to the people. And and chapters 3 and 4 are going to focus on Levi, specifically the sons of Kohath, and and how to relate to uh, clean people versus unclean people. We talked about what all of that means last week. It is not analogous to sinful versus holy. Uh, And in chapter 7, we also have two celebrations of the Passover, which is the, the great uh, sacramental meal of the, of the Old Covenant people. Uh, the first one is for those who are, who are in a state of ritual cleanness. The second one is for those who were not able to attend the first. Nonetheless, the, the point is that from chapter 3 to chapter 10, this whole section on preparation, 7 out of 10 chapters are focused on what? They're focused on the worship of God. Preparation begins with worship. Again, the land of Canaan is the promised land. It is a real geographic location that they were going to. But the point is it's a placeholder for something else. In many ways, the book of Numbers might be the most applicable and the most directly relatable book in the Old Testament for us as New Testament believers. Um, The book of Hebrews uh, in many ways, it is a is a commentary on Leviticus, but it's also a sermon on Psalm 95, which is covering this same wilderness wandering period for the people of Israel. And so the, the book of Numbers is directly applicable to us because God also prepares us for the new heavens and the new earth. He prepares us for the new Jerusalem. He prepares us for heaven through what means? Through worship. That is the primary means that God uses to prepare his people to dwell with him. What we do in the sanctuary on Sunday morning and evening ought to be regarded as the most important part of your week. Because you are there preparing, you are being made fit for dwelling with God forever. 
Yes, through the faith in the blood of the Lamb. Absolutely. Yes, through a, a resolve to live holy obedience to his command. Yes, he's preparing you in those ways as well. But he's also preparing you through the rhythm of worship. Uh, we, we prepare to dwell with God for all eternity by entering into his presence in corporate worship. That is where we come out of the wilderness of this world. That's the beauty of the Lord's Day. Is we, we set aside all the cares, all the concerns, all the problems of this world that we, we might focus on dwelling with God. And in chapters 10, verses 11 to 12, we read, In the second year, in the second month, on the twentieth day of the month, the cloud lifted over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. So the preparation it has been set, it's, it's complete, and now we're ready to move. The cloud has arisen and is ready to lead them out from the camp at Sinai. And so as we, as we move at that very uh, key transitional point, we'll move into our second section, God protects his people by, by purifying them. So we've seen they are counted, they're organized, they're ready to go. And, and they set out following the cloud on the wilderness journey. And, and three days in, three days into the departure, we get to chapter 11. And things go downhill quickly. Anybody want to take a guess on what happens at the beginning of chapter 11? Mr. Trotner. The people complain. The people complain. Good job. Section heading right there. It's your friend. The people complain. They, they, they begin to grumble first about their misfortunes. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. I, I don't like the, 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 the wind. Yeah, the sand. It's everywhere. Whatever it might be. They're, they're grumbling about these things in a general sense. But then it gets specific also. They, they, they begin to grumble specifically about the food. Remember how good we had it in Egypt. Remember the fish and the, and, and the melons and, and all of these things. And, and Moses' patience in chapter 11 is already worn thin. They're three days into the journey and Moses asks God to kill him. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. I'm not exaggerating. Look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. He says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I might not see my wretchedness. God, I, I realize that I've been called to lead your people for the rest of my life. And I want to fulfill that call. It'd be really great if you could end my life now. Because I fulfilled that call then. That's what he said. That, it, that's the beginning of the journey. This is, this is a people who needs to be purified. This is a people who needs purification. And it gets worse after that. It's already bad enough that Moses would like to die. Because the people are complaining all the time. What's next is his, his, his right and left hand, if you will. His assistants, the people that are supposed to be on his team, rebel against him. His, his own brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, also rebel against Moses. They try and take his authority. And the Lord himself has to step in and intervene. And he actually strikes Marion with leprosy as a, as a judgment for her trying to take that authority that did not belong to her. But the kicker, the straw that really uh, broke the camel's back, 
is when, he, when they send out the spies in chapter 14. And you guys know what happens with the spies, right? He sends the spies on ahead to check out the promised land. And, and what do they come back and say? Anybody? Jack? Yeah. What do they say before that? Do you know? They said this place is great. This place is everything God said it would be. It's absolutely beautiful. But we don't stand a chance because the men that dwell there are giants. There, there's, there is no way that we can possibly take this land. While it's great and, 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 and worthy of all of the promises that God has made to us, the people there are too great for us to overcome. Here's what they said straight from the scriptures, chapter 13, verses 27 to 28. We came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. So they, they bring back evidence of, of how great the fruit is. However, the people who dwell in this land are strong, and their cities are fortified and very large. Now, in contrast, Caleb says in verse 30, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Now, now what's interesting about Caleb's response is not, he doesn't say, they're not that big. The city's not that well guarded. We're not that outmatched. He doesn't try and appeal to that. He says, no, we're able to do it. What what, What the other spy said is true. They are giants. They do have massive military equipment. But we are able to. Why? Because God is with us. He says that in chapter 14, verse 8. If the Lord delights in us, and he does, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Caleb believes like the old Scottish Presbyterian minister John Knox said, any man with God is always in the majority. So so these are the two sides. We can believe God's promises. God said he would give us this land. Or we can doubt them. We can believe that God is able to do what he said he would do. Who, by the way, has been right the whole time. Has kept everything so far. Or we can shrink back in fear. Those are the choices. There is no third option. You either believe the promise or you don't. To be unsure is to disbelieve. You either believe the promise or you don't. And the reality is God will not fail to keep his promises even in the lack of the faith of his people. And he hands down the judgment for this lack of faith in chapter 14, verses 28 to 37. Uh, And I won't read that whole passage, uh, but, but the gist of it is, this generation who has seen the ten plagues, who has seen the parting of the Red Sea, who has seen the Red Sea swallow up their enemies. They, they, they heard my voice thundering from the cloud at Mount Sinai. They, they experienced my mercy when they worshipped the golden calf immediately after that. They, they've received all of this. And they still don't trust me. This generation will all die. Before we get to the promised land. But I will still keep my promise to Abraham. Because their children 
the next generation will go in. God will not fail to keep his promises for the lack of faith of some. And you know, that's the the same choice though that is, is left to us. God will keep his promises to his church. God will keep his promises to his people. But we also, every generation has to ask of themselves, do I believe these covenant promises that have been declared to me or not? And that's not just my interpretation and trying to bring the text up to the, to the modern day. That's the Apostle Paul's interpretation of this same book. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 12, he's going to say, they were baptized just like you were baptized. They, they ate and drank of the, of the same spiritual food that you do. The, the, the Lord's Supper, they partook of all of that. And yet they fell away. These things are an example for you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's paraphrasing, but if you want to look that passage up later, it's 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 12. We have to decide, are we going to believe the promises of God, or are we going to fall away? The state of our faith is probably not something that we inquire about enough. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. The Westminster Confession, or the Westminster Larger Catechism speaks of all the ways that we ought to improve upon our baptism by remembering the promises that were declared to us in that. But we really ought to investigate the quality of our faith because it's not just the faithless generation that has been grumbling from the start that's going to suffer that punishment. Who else suffers that same punishment of not being able to enter the promised land? Does anybody know? Yes. Moses. Moses. The most holy of all of them. Now, it's worth noting that um, failure to obtain the, the earthly shadow of the promise is not saying that Moses will be cast out of the kingdom of glory. He's not being put out of heaven, as it were. But it is worth noting that because of even Moses' lack of faith, uh, Numbers 20, verse 12, God says, You did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. Now, we have every reason to believe Moses is in heaven. But the point is that there are earthly, temporal, in-this-life consequences that are real for our own sin and our own uh, uh, our own failure to uphold God as holy. Now, this is a people, all of whom, who need purification. And God does purify his people. In what is, to me, probably the most interesting episode in the whole book, and it's really the episode on which the whole, the whole narrative turns. So let's look at it for a moment. Uh, Numbers 21, and I'll read this passage for us and we'll talk about it uh, with the time that we have left. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. So this is, this is a, a long period uh, of, of that first generation dying out, some in battles that are lost, some uh, in Korah's rebellion, uh, which is a terrible way to go. Um, and many other uh, events, but, but here, here's, here's where it all starts to turn. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around to the land of Edom. 
and the people became impatient on the way. When I, when I transcribed this, I almost accidentally wrote again, because I assumed that's what the text said, but it, it doesn't. But the people were impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait a second. There is no food. And we loathe this worthless food that you've given us. There's not no food. They are being provided for. Just not the way that they would prefer. They prefer the things of Egypt. They prefer things the way they were. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What in the world? Why? Why a serpent? If you've been following along, uh, in the Bible, serpent generally not a good connotation. Right? What, what's, the, what's the first thing that we think of when we think of serpent in the Bible? Satan. Satan. It's also directly imagery that's associated with the Pharaoh in Egypt. Why is that the symbol there to look at and find purification? You guys see the quandary there? Like, what in the world is going on? Mr. Cantino? Looking at the serpent would be like acknowledging their sin. Looking at the serpent is an acknowledgement of sin? That's a that's an interesting interpretation. Anybody else? Mr. Duncan. God is powerful enough to work good in all things, even the most evil. Okay, that's another theologically true statement. God is powerful enough to work good in all things, even that which is evil. Right? That's part of how the book of Genesis ends. Genesis 50:20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it, the same thing, for good. Okay? Those are good ideas. I I think the best way to understand it is as a direct reference to Pharaoh and, by extension, Satan and the powers of evil. And I I really think it's best summed up by um, one of... uh, I did not have this man, but he's a professor at RTS. uh, Michael Glodo. Uh, He says, it was God's reminder of the status of the powers of Egypt, those powers to which the complainers wished to return. The gods of Egypt were dead, and those who worshipped them would become like them. The bites of the serpents were likely reminders of the sting of slavery, perhaps even the sting of Egyptian whips. So he's saying, You guys who were just complaining two verses ago about how good you had it in Egypt, did you forget this part? In contrast, the God of Israel was the living God 
who demonstrated his superiority over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and had sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years. And in other words, what Moses is doing, what the Lord is having Moses do by holding up this bronze serpent is saying, this is the power of the world and, and I hold it in my hands as if it's nothing. You need to remember that the victory has already been won. You have already been delivered. The, 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 the promised land is as good as yours. We just need to go get it. Look at your greatest enemy. I own him. I've conquered it. This is mine to give you. And this text is actually the setup to what is probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. John 3.16, right? For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that, so that whosoever shall believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, what's Jesus say to Nicodemus right before that? John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, we are purified as the people of God when we look to Christ, when we look to what he has done for us on the cross when sin and death were conquered, were defeated. And we are purified, made holy before the Lord as we live out the reality and the implications of that, as we are no longer concerned with the problems down here that are real. But remember that the ultimate things have already been dealt with. The ultimate guilt, the ultimate, um, the ultimate uh, source of suffering in this life has been dealt with. And lastly, and I hate to have to rush this, God protects his people by preserving them. And this is really the rest of the book. And I would really encourage if you go back to look at just part of the book of Numbers later this week. Look at chapters 22 to 24. This is the story of Balaam and Balak. Balak is a pagan king and he has heard what the Lord did to Egypt. And he has seen how the tides have turned for Israel even in the wilderness as they start to conquer other kings like Sihon and Og. And so he gets Balaam the prophet and he hires him to curse the people. And he tries this three times. But every time when this prophet goes to pronounce a curse over the people of God, he actually winds up speaking a blessing. He intends to pronounce curses on them. But he can't do it. Because God will not allow his people to be cursed. Deuteronomy 23.5 says, Yet the Lord your God, Moses talking about this very episode, Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loved you. It's a simple point, but it's important. The reason that God preserves purifies and protects his people is because he loves you. You're going to hear in the 11 o'clock sermon from Jeremiah 31, uh, to, uh, till, till death do us part, and, and, and God's faithfulness to the covenant that he has made with his people. And that's absolutely true. But I want you to know that it's not just because God made a promise and he can't break his promise. It is true that God can't break his promise. It is true that he did promise, but he doesn't want to. The reason God does all this for you is not because he's boxed himself in. It's because he loves you. And so he will prepare you. He will purify you and he will preserve you in this life because he
He loves you as he leads you into the promised land. And, and again, Dr. Phillips is going to quote from this, but it fits here too. Uh, Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is with man. And they will be with him as his people and God himself will be their God. Because the Lord your God loves you, he turns the curse into a blessing. Well, let's pray. God in heaven, we do give thanks to you for this book of Numbers. And that you work with your people, sinful though we might be, complaining and and grumblers though we might be. Lord, that you love us and that you prepare us and make us fit for eternity through the worship of your Son. Would you do that even now as we prepare to go to your sanctuary? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.